And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and asked him, saying, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your word. And we pray that we would uh, receive it with joy and faith, that we would store it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage is a a little bit of a a transition. Really, all of chapter 9 to this point is a, a transition from one major stage of Christ's ministry to another. Commentators will point this out in a variety of ways. You, you can think of it in terms of location. Uh, they have now moved from a, a ministry that much of the ministry up to this point was in Judea and kind of down in the southern region or really close along the uh, certain edge of the Sea of Galilee. And now it transitions across that to the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee and uh, and regions that are kind of a little removed from the the majority of the more faithful Israelites, at least the way they would have thought of it, uh, and further from Jerusalem for a short while. You can also think of it, uh, some commentators will call this the retirement ministry, or we could call it the retreat ministry. Uh, And we've already noted that the past two weeks, Jesus and his apostles They're trying to retreat from the crowds and get into the the wilderness and have some time alone to rest and spend time together, but the crowds follow them. And and yet, although that is the case, the crowds will continue to show up throughout the following passages. Uh, it, It is a little different even there. Up to this point, the crowds, if Christ was there, the crowds were there. And in fact, we're told in the Gospels that the apostles, as well as Christ, went through times previously where they couldn't even sit down to eat for days on end because the crowds were pressing in so tight. Now, as we move into the the following passages, the crowds will show up at times, but the majority of what we're going to be looking at for a little while here is Christ finally getting those moments in between the crowds to teach his apostles. And that's really the focus Luke will give us, not on the crowds as much anymore, but on the moments alone and the teaching that's being done 
And that, of course, begins here. Now, how do we go from the crowds pressing around them so much, even following them, right? There's the boat. Let's walk along the edge of the lake so that we can follow the boat to the other side. Don't let them get away. How do we move from that to this kind of retirement ministry, as some call it? John gives us the answer to that, doesn't he? In John chapter 6, which if you're not familiar, you can go and read it today. The, the events just following what we looked at last week, Christ feeds the 5,000, and then the next day, the 5,000 plus others come, and they want Christ to keep giving them the handouts. They want to take him and forcibly make him king, force Herod out, press Christ on the throne. They want him to take over as king and drive off Rome and then give them food every day so they don't have to work. And Christ's response to that is so offensive to the crowds that by the end of his sermon that day, the crowds are running away from him. And he actually says to his apostles, do you also want to leave me? And Peter, again, as the spokesman says, where else will we go? Where else will we go? You hold the words of life. What an amazing introduction that is to this period where Christ will teach them how that life can be theirs. It's a difficult period. They're going to have a real struggle with accepting how that life can be theirs. What is required of Christ for them to have life in his name? And in fact, some of what he teaches, even in today's text, they, they will not receive and understand properly until after he rises from the dead. But in this period, Christ will be teaching them. This, this section begins, though, before kind of as the, the way he begins teaching them, begins with a moment of distinction, confession, and clarification. So those are the three things I I want to consider this morning with you from our passage. This is a moment of distinction being made, of confession being made, and clarification being made. So first, distinction. Christ asks the apostles two questions. And he does that so that they can distinguish between themselves and the world. He requires them to draw a line in the sand and show which side of the line they stand on. Again, this is that same period of time. Maybe it's even the same day. Maybe this is Luke's different way of telling us the same story of Christ asking, do you also want to leave? Or maybe this is within a few days of that, and he's testing them a second time, but he asks them this double question. First, who do men say that I am? Who do the crowds think I am? And who do you think that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? And they give three answers. Well, some people think you're Elijah, resurrected in some way or or someone who has the spirit of Elijah. It's a little unclear what exactly about Elijah they thought. Literally Elijah rising from the dead or 
Or is this someone coming in the spirit of Elijah? Same thing with others. They think he's John the Baptist. Literally John the Baptist? Or someone coming who's like John the Baptist? That's a little unclear as well. Or maybe one of the prophets, the old prophets, risen again. Uh, Again, that, that one especially seems to imply they think he's literally someone risen again. Isn't that interesting? All three answers have a a dead person in some way coming back. And by the end of this passage, Christ is going to say, well, a dead person does have to come back. Close, but the answers aren't close enough, are they? Not close enough. John the Baptist. Why did they think John the Baptist? That one really confuses me. They were less than one year apart. Cousins. And publicly, John had not only baptized Christ in front of crowds, but he'd also pointed at him and said, there's the Lamb of God. How do people think that Jesus is the resurrected version of John? Very confusing what they were thinking. But at least in, in Herod's instance, as we saw earlier in the chapter, guilt can do a lot, can't it? How you treat someone can lead you to, to thinking strange things later. Or we could perhaps say more accurately that the superstition of unbelief leads to absurd beliefs. The superstition of unbelief leads to absurd beliefs. We, we reject the truth, and then the things that we have to fill the gaps in with are so absurd, and we don't even notice it because unbelief is superstitious. Every form of unbelief is superstitious in some fashion, even, even the unbelief of uh, you know, science as God is still superstitious in a variety of ways. Here here they are. Why did they think he was John? We don't know. Why Elijah? That one makes a little bit more sense because there is a text that seems to imply this. In in Malachi chapter 4, 5, and 6, it's actually the last passage of Old Testament scripture. It's the last prophecy they had received before hundreds of years of God's silence until John showed up. And there, God had said that he would send Elijah before the Messiah to prepare his way by drawing the people to repentance and reconciliation. Now, all you have to do is read that passage in Malachi about how he's going to do that. And it screams more John than Jesus. You don't need Jesus to tell you that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Elijah coming again. The, the call to repentance, the, the critique of sin, it sounds exactly like John, and yet, and yet they, they didn't understand that that was John, and they want to place it at Christ's feet instead. Christ in Matthew 17 tells the disciples uh, that Elijah has already come at that point, but the leaders of Israel did not recognize him, and so they rejected him. And this is what Matthew comments. Then we understood that he spoke about John the Baptist. We we didn't get that 
until he drew the, the dots to connect it. Oh, Elijah came and the leaders rejected him. That must be John. That's Matthew's comment on this. Well, why one of the prophets? I have no answer to that one. If not Elijah, where are they getting the idea of a prophet being raised again from the Old Testament? That's, that's, that one's especially, especially hard. But I think the, the real answer to all of this, why are they giving all these answers, is clear. It's because they envisioned the coming Messiah as a warrior king on a, on, on a horse driving out Rome, destroying all the enemies, setting up the glory day of Israel. And Jesus didn't fit with that description. And yet they had to acknowledge that Jesus was more, more than anything they had ever heard of before. More than Elijah. More than all the prophets of the Old Testament. He was something more But he wasn't what they wanted in a Messiah or what they expected. And so they have to make him Messiah adjacent so that they can reject him as the Messiah. Messiah adjacent. So what could be more Messiah adjacent than Elijah from Malachi 4? The the sad thing is this is so close because it's Malachi 3 and 4 that describing this Elijah God says that he'll send his messenger to prepare the way for the Messiah who will suddenly appear in the temple. So by by saying John or Elijah, they're they're so close to the right answer. They're in the right passage from the right prophet. But it's not close enough. It's not close enough. And how true this is for millions in the church today, isn't it? In the church in America, we have all sorts of things that we say about Christ. All sorts of things we're willing to weaponize Christ to say. But they're not close enough often to the gospel of what Christ has said about himself. And not close enough doesn't count. What was it we used to say? Close enough only counts with horseshoes and hand grenades. Good, one other person knows that line. Horseshoes and hand grenades. It doesn't work with the cross. It doesn't work with the Messiah. Close enough. J.C. Ryle comments, Many a man cloaks his indolence and laziness about religion under a pretense of a variety of opinions and the difficulty of knowing who is right. Ryle could have written that about the church in America today, couldn't he? He wrote that over a hundred years ago about the church in England. But that's, that's true for us today, isn't it? We say all sorts of things about Jesus and, and we cloak our rejection of who Christ says he is behind, well, how can we really know? There are all these different opinions. Who are you to think that you're right and everyone else is wrong? But this is a moment of distinction in our text 
Because Christ doesn't stop with what do the people think. He says, but what do you think? They've been with him for years. And, and you, you can even remember, perhaps, from John's gospel, what brought them to Jesus on day one. Andrew came to Peter and said, we found the Messiah. Nathaniel went to Philip and said, or the other way around maybe, we found the Messiah. They went to Christ on day one because they thought they knew who he was. So over a year later, they've been with him every day, walking with him, observing him, listening to him. And now whatever has been building throughout all that time, Christ requires them to openly and clearly say it. Who do you think I am? They draw the line in the sand and they stand on the right side of it here. A distinction is made and that's required of us as well, not just in that one moment, but always Christ would have his disciples draw the line in the sand and know where they stand in accordance. William Hendrickson writes, a true believer is one who is willing whenever necessary to fly in the face of popular opinion and openly express a conviction that is contrary to that of the masses. It's a moment of distinction. And the apostles give the right answer. It's also, therefore, a moment of confession. We see, we see their confession. Peter, mouth, mouth person, spokesperson for the apostles, says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. A short, succinct, to the point answer. And the, the answer is accepted by Jesus, isn't it? The, uh, the apostles will have a faulty understanding. They, they have it now. They'll continue to have it to some extent. They don't understand everything exactly right. But their simple, basic answer is right, and it is accepted. They, they don't have to have the, the PhD in theology to be accepted in this confession. Neither, neither do we. Thank God for that. Our, our, for example, just I was thinking about our, our membership interviews. Although we, we require you to take a class before joining so you understand what this church and its leadership will teach, we, we don't actually require you to sign the paper and say, well, I agree with every single thing in that class. In essence, the membership interview comes down, we, we may not word it like this, but it comes down to who is Jesus. What do you say? Who do you say Jesus is? I think in one interview that might have actually been the, the question. I was remembering Dallas's interview, and I think Bill might have just asked, who is Jesus? And it was a great interview. And 
A wonderful answer given. A moment of confession. The apostles don't have it all figured out quite yet, but they give the right answer. You are the Messiah, or you are the anointed one. That's what Christ means. We, we just think Jesus Christ, it's almost like a first and last name, but Christ is a title, anointed one. It's a title, the Messiah. This is a very clear answer they're giving. For the apostles, the, the Christ or the anointed one was a title that in a general sense applied to prophets, priests, and kings, all people appointed by God in the Old Testament. But by the end of the Old Testament era, it had come to especially signify one specific figure, one who was greater than all the ones who had come before. And so the later prophets will speak very powerfully about the Messiah, the anointed one. But really, it's all throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? The greatest prophet, Moses, says, Another prophet will come after me who is greater than I. David is promised a son who will sit on an eternal throne. If your confession is any less than what the apostles have given here, Messiah of God, it is not Christianity. The apostles were saying that this is the one who will bring us God's word, who will reconcile us to the Father, and who will reign over us as king. And if our answer is less than that, it's not Christianity. Alexander McLaren put it like this, doctrine is not Christianity, but it is the foundation of Christianity. The apostolic confession here is the irreducible minimum of the Christian creed. I like that. I saw that this week and I almost actually just had our confession of faith for today be the Christ of God. But I'm having us do a slightly longer confession after the sermon instead. Hopefully that gets to the same point. But this is the irreducible minimum. If Jesus is less than the Messiah, less than the Savior, the King, and the Priest, then it is not Christianity, no matter what we say. Well, Christ accepts their answer, certifying that it is he, the Messiah, who has come. And he does this with the phrase, the Son of Man. Now, some liberal scholars will try to say that's actually Jesus correcting the apostles. No, 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 no. I'm not the Messiah. I'm just a Son of Man. Because Son of Man was a phrase that early in the Old Testament refers to a weak human whom God loves. Right? It, it's used of men, for example, like Ezekiel the prophet. He was a man whom God showed special affection toward in his difficult life. And so more than anyone else in the Old Testament, Ezekiel is referred to as the son of man. So it did have this idea of being 
a man, humanity. But is that what Christ means predominantly when he refers to himself as the son of man? The answer is no, because actually after Ezekiel, or really at the same time as Ezekiel's ministry, God added to our understanding of what the Son of Man is and who he was to be. And all the Jews from that day on understood Son of Man as a messianic title. We find this because Ezekiel's contemporary Daniel in Daniel 7 paints the picture of heaven. And there is God the Father, the Ancient of Days, sitting on his throne. And the Son of Man ascends to the Father's right hand and sits next to the Ancient of Days. And to him is given all authority and power and a kingdom that will never end. They understood that the Son of Man is the Messiah. And so when Christ uses this title for himself more than any other self-definition, Christ is being very clear with them. I am the one who will rise to the right hand of God and receive the kingdom. One reason why the leaders didn't particularly like him, right? He's the Messiah. He is. He is saying to them, you are right. So it's a moment of, it's a moment of uh, distinction. The disciples have to distinguish themselves from the world. A moment of confession of who Christ is. And third, it's a moment of clarification. Christ accepts their confession. But he also instructs them in what they don't yet understand. You're right, I'm the Messiah. In fact, you're, you're right, I'm the Son of Man, so I will be the victorious king you're waiting for. But first, I'm Isaiah's Messiah. I'm the suffering servant of the Lord first, and then the Son of Man in glory. That's in essence what Christ is showing them here. And we'll continue to clarify for them in the days ahead, even at times doing so and angering them so that Peter, for example, as you know, will say, forbid that what you're teaching us ever be true, Lord. And he has to get put in his place. They, or they ignore what Jesus is teaching them and fight over who's going to be next to him, next to the Father, in glory. But Christ here, more than any other point previously, is starting to make clear to them what the Messiah means, what he must do. And he declares to them here, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and must be killed. All these things must happen to the Messiah. You thought I would show up on a white horse, kill Herod, take over Jerusalem, and lead an army out to defeat Rome and take over the world. You thought I was going to be 
David on steroids, taking over the known world like David never could. That's what you thought, but that's not what the Messiah is to do. It's going to be hard for the disciples to stomach that and understand it. Equally hard and tied with that is that they have to reassess who the real enemy is. The enemy that the Messiah comes to defeat. Is it Rome? Is it even Herod, who was a wicked man claiming to be the king of God's people? No, it's not really either of those, is it? Christ points us to two sets of enemies in his answer here. First, if we're going to pick earthly enemies for the Messiah, who is the worst earthly enemy of the Messiah? He says right here that he will be rejected by the elders of Israel, the members of the synagogue, the rulers of supposedly God's people. He'll be rejected by the chief priests. That designation, chief priests, refers to the active chief priest as well, right? By by this period, it, it moved from the Old Testament where there was one chief priest until he died and then his son took over or his nephew or whomever to there being a, a group that tended to have terms to their serving as chief priest from a variety of different households, most of which had nothing to do with the line of Aaron. <laughs> And this group, including the chief priest himself, who's supposed to be making intercession for God's people at the temple, he too will reject the Messiah and all of his associates. And the scribes, the seminary professors, the Bible scholars, these, from an earthly perspective, are the most immediate enemies of the Messiah. And it is they who will drag him illegally at night before Rome in the person of Pontius Pilate and before Herod and say, kill him. It is they who will say, let his blood be on our heads and who get the crowd to follow them in this. So Christ is saying, you're right, I'm the Messiah, but my primary immediate enemies are not who you think they are. It's the leaders of my people. It's not the first time God has said this. Read Jeremiah. Read Ezekiel. Read all of the minor prophets where the leadership of God's people are vicious and brutal and abusive and distracting them from the true worship of God. Christ here is simply repeating what the prophets have warned before and they will put him to death. The other enemy, though, that is more implied in Christ's response is in the fact that the Messiah must be killed. He must be killed. Not that Christ is saying, I I will be killed. We're going to make a great attempt, guys. It's going to be a glorious, glorious tragedy. But I know I'm going to die in the end. That's not what Christ is saying, is it? 
He says, of the essence of the Messiah and all that the Messiah is to be is the requirement, the need that he die, that he be killed. It's necessary. So Christ is clarifying something for us today as well. The, the cross was necessary. Absolutely necessary. Sometimes in the evangelical church, we think we're being very holy in our view of, of our God when, when we say, well, God could have chosen to save sinners in a variety of ways. The cross is just the one he chose. And that sounds very holy, doesn't it? Because very pious, because it seems to fit with our idea, uh, not our idea, the biblical idea, God revealing that he is the infinite God. So surely the infinite God could come up with infinite options for salvation. That's actually not the case. Because the infinite God is the infinitely holy God. And the infinitely righteous God. Uh, we, we tend to think that God could be holy and just decide to forgive us. Just decide to shrug off our sin against him. But then he would cease to be righteous and holy. He'd be a God that could be bought off, a judge that could be bribed. He would be a, a, a righteous one who doesn't care about righteousness anywhere else other than in himself, which isn't righteousness. If you really care about justice, you're not okay seeing other people not receiving justice. God cannot be infinitely holy, righteous, and just and not punish sin. So the cross is the only way that anyone can be saved and not endure hell. Because the only way that we could be saved is for the God-man, to bear the infinite weight of our sin and guilt upon the cross. Christ is saying it is necessary for the Messiah to die. And he will go on to teach us throughout the New Testament what we should have known from the Old Testament all along. We need atonement. We need the shedding of blood. We need to be able to sing with the hymn writer, in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Without those lines, there is no hallelujah, what a savior. There's no savior. Christ clarifies here what Messiah is, what the Christ is. He's the one who must die so that he might save. But he's not a gloomy savior. Notice he also says one other thing must happen. He must rise again. He must rise again the third day. It's not an option for Christ to die and not rise. Death could not hold him. 
The Messiah is the Son of Man, who must, when his work is done, ascend to the Ancient of Days and sit down, having declared, it is finished. And so Christ would clarify for his disciples and for us the type of Messiah that he is. Who do you think Jesus is? Do you long to understand him on his own terms, to grow as a disciple at his feet and know him better? Luke 1 verse 4, remember, told us the purpose of this gospel, that we might be certain. Another gospel will tell us that the purpose of the gospels that we might know Jesus, the Son of God, and that we might have life in 